Now, recently in our international news, we delved into the issue of re-education camps in Western China. To give you a brief background here, in 2014, President Xi Jinping declared the People's War on Terror amid a downward spiral of violence and repression in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, home to some 12 million indigenous Muslim minorities, primarily Uyghurs and others. But since March last year, China's been hardening its grip on ethnic minorities adopting regulation on de-extremification. And as Western media outlets have reported, there's a banner on a mosque reading, Love the party, love the country. Let's bring in Dake Kang, multimedia journalist at the Associated Press, for more on the line from Beijing. Thank you very much for taking the time. Yes, hello. So last week, China, you know, they legalised these re-education camps of Muslims in Xinjiang province in the name of fighting extremism and separatism. Can you tell us what's really going on inside them? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I want to say, um, uh, as foreign journalists, we're not allowed access to them. Uh, everyone in uh, all foreign journalists in Xinjiang are followed by, you know, anywhere from two to 20 police officers and other officials who will kind of bar you from going anywhere they, they deem sensitive. Um, so we have to rely on outside accounts. Um, and what we've heard is pretty alarming. So uh, what little we've heard in March, we interviewed a man in Kazakhstan um, who said that he was actually a former detainee in one of these uh, indoctrination camps. And he basically describes them as, uh, you know, basically prisons where they have to learn, uh, basically disavow their Muslim religious beliefs and to thank the party and uh, learn communist propaganda. Um, so, you know, he describes being locked in a room with eight other people with round-the-clock surveillance and cameras everywhere, and that every morning everyone had to wake up before dawn, sing the national anthem at a Chinese flag-raising ceremony at 7.30 a.m., and then sent to, you know, these long classes where they spent most of the day learning, you know, communist kind of red songs like Without the Communist Party, There is No New China, um, that, you know, people and ethnic minorities in Xinjiang were backwards before being liberated by the Communist Party, um, and then being drilled about the dangers of Islam and being quizzed. And if they got the answers wrong, he said that detainees would actually be punished by being forced to stand at walls for hours at a time. So, you know, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, China uh, kind of gave a legal basis for these re-education camps uh, very recently, actually, just last week, and uh, we're seeing more and more coming out uh, from the Chinese side. So we actually, just uh, a couple days ago, I think the day before yesterday, uh, Chinese central television, state television, broadcast a 15-minute-long long, long segment purporting to show the interior of one of these so-called vocational training centers. So, you know, we're really starting to see the Chinese authorities after, you know, year of, like, years of kind of ignoring the issue and months of denial, uh, finally admitting that these centers exist, but they have these, this kind of counter-narrative where they're saying that, that it's for vocational training. But, you know, it's not really voluntary. Um, people don't really have the choice to participate in them, and, you know, they're surrounded by high walls and barbed wire and uh, former detainees kind of describe guard towers and round-the-clock surveillance. Uh, so they really can't leave these places. So, you know, another person who used to teach at these centers calls them basically, um, you know, a prison in the mountains. So, and with a million Muslims being held 
Is that number from Amnesty International accurate? Yeah, so, you know, it's really hard to say because this is such a secretive program. Um, but, you know, a lot of good researchers have done a lot of good work. For example, there's a German researcher who's kind of trawled through government notices and has so far found evidence of, I believe, 73 different uh, so-called uh, education centers across the region. Uh, a lot of this is uh, corroborated by satellite imagery. There's actually someone who's been going through Google, you know, Google Earth and kind of cross-referencing it with these kind of government procurement bids. Um, and, you know, each of, if, if you think about the fact that each of these centers, um, you know, we're hearing uh, thousands of people in each of these centers, you multiply them by 73 plus all of the other de- uh, detention centers that we don't know about. Um, I mean, yeah, the numbers easily in the hundreds of thousands. And I think it's possible that it could be up to a million, as the Amnesty International report says. Can we talk a little bit further how someone might end up being sent to one of these camps? Is it random, for example? Yeah. No, sure, sure. No, um, I don't believe... It's, it's not random. Um, Xinjiang is kind of under an unprecedented degree of digital surveillance. It's made possible by the emergence of technologies like DNA testing, facial recognition software, phone and chat surveillance, and just cameras everywhere in the region. I mean, there's just... If you actually go to Xinjiang... Um, there's just cameras everywhere. And basically, uh, activists in the U.S. have kind of described point-based systems um, where basically things like uh, wearing veils, praying daily, owning a Quran, having a religious education, you know, these kinds of things that anywhere else would be considered just a normal sign of religious piety gets you, gets you points deducted and then can get you thrown into a re-education camp. And for many of the people we interviewed for our stories, um, you know, we're interviewing exiles in Turkey. Uh, it appears that a lot of their relatives were sent to these indoctrination camps, basically because they had contact with their family who, who were outside China. And that was enough to, to land them in these camps. Uh, one person we spoke to heard his wife was taken away after he sent her a gift of olive oil. I mean, that's, you know, so it's not completely random, per se, But the kind of things that they're being taken away for are really not things that would be considered by any reasonable standard criminal activity or uh, anything along those lines. It's really kind of normal signs of, uh, you know, religious piety, it seems like. This should be prompting global outrage. And to a certain extent it is, but not as much as perhaps it should be. Is that because we're talking about... um, a relatively less-known ethnic minority who happen to be Muslim rather than, let's say, Christian, for example, that might uh, gain more sympathy in the U.S.? I, I, you know, I definitely think that's one part of it. Um, you know, if you trace uh, this uh, campaign all the way back um, after 9-11, the Chinese government kind of took that as an opportunity to strike, strike, uh, kind of crack down in Xinjiang and, uh, you know, kind of promote that as being a shared... Uh, strike against terrorism, along with, you know, what the United States was doing in the Middle East. Um, I also think another factor is that China really has weight in the, in the world today, in the international community today, that they just didn't have before, economically speaking. And so what's going on is, you know, a lot of countries, Muslim countries, uh, you know, take Pakistan or Indonesia 
uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, countries that really spoke out um, when uh, the Rohingya, we were hearing all these reports about the Rohingya minority in, in Myanmar being persecuted. Um, you know, they were really outspoken about that issue, but they've been very silent about this issue in Xinjiang. And uh, a lot of that is because they have very strong economic ties with China, and they really worry that those ties could be jeopardized if they speak out on an issue that the Mm. Chinese government deems sensitive. You did cover another serious problem exposing how China treats Uyghur children as orphans after taking their parents. It's heartbreaking to look at the details, but can you just give us more insight into that situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... uh, it's it's a, it's, it's really dark. I mean, you know, we, the, because there's just so many people who are vanishing into these indoctrination centers. Um, and, you know, as far as we know, they're not really taking children into them. You know, parents are vanishing into these centers, leaving their children behind. And the natural question becomes, well, what happens to the children? Um, and so we kind of set out to answer that question by interviewing, uh, people, uh, outside, who managed to escape China, who knew that their children uh, left behind in Xinjiang didn't have anyone uh, to take care of them, and uh, you know what 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 they're saying is that they're they're being you know there there's orphanages kind of being built uh, all across the region to house their children, or they're being sent to so-called bilingual kindergartens or boarding schools um, where they're basically just being taken care of and raised by the state. Uh, they're being forced to uh, learn Mandarin. Um, oftentimes, they're hearing reports that, um, you know, they're being forced to adopt kind of uh, Han Chinese, the majority Han Chinese kind of cultural traits and characteristics, like wearing Han Chinese clothes or eating Han uh, Chinese food. And, you know, this is really, this is really disturbing for them because it really feels, they, they really feel as though their ethnic identity, their culture is being erased. You are exposing, you're part of the media trend exposing this. Do you not feel under threat? You're not um, based in some distant location. You are there right now on the line from Beijing. Yeah, I mean, you know, people people do get concerned when they read read your reports. I mean, I had some friends ask me, you know, are you going to get uh, ejected from the country or anything like that? And there was someone uh, who is... uh, you know, had their visa didn't, uh, they, they, their visa was not renewed and they had to leave the country a couple of months ago from BuzzFeed. Um, and you know, when we are in Xinjiang, we are subject to considerable harassment. Police, as I said before, will follow you everywhere. They'll kind of detain you at every, any, any time. Um, they'll force you to delete your photos. They're, they'll ask you all sorts of questions. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, by and large, as foreign journalists, we are protected uh, from more serious consequences. I mean, you know, they know that there, there would be a lot of international attention if a foreign journalist was uh, detained and put in prison or anything like that. So, you know, we're actually pretty safe doing our jobs here. I mean, it's not like we're going to get physically hurt uh, or attacked. The bigger danger really is for the people that we're interviewing. I mean, they really worry that their relatives are going to get detained or vanished, or they themselves feel like they're being monitored and spied on and might get, you know, deported back to China. Um, so it's, it's relatively okay for us. The I mean, bigger threat is for the people we're interviewing. I mean, you, you say there would be international uproar, but you think about uh, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey at the Saudi consulate, and you think, actually... 
journalists are not given, you know, the guarantee of safety. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a that's a really shocking story out out of Turkey, and that's a that's a good point. Um, but I really do think, you know, the Chinese. That's that's not really the the way the Chinese government operates. You know, they 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 say, you know, it's kind of codified in China that foreign journalists are allowed to be here. They're allowed to interview anyone they want. And um, so when they when they when they don't want something to kind of leak into to, to gain international attention, the way they kind of control that is by denying access to us, um, as opposed to intimidating or threatening us. So you know that's just they 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 pretty they'll they'll do if you're a Chinese citizen, um, there's they really feel as though they can do pretty much anything they want with you, and that's not really the affair of any other country. But as a foreign citizen, you know, they know that they would kind of draw the attention of other countries. And they kind of believe that uh, it's not necessarily their right to do whatever they want to foreigners. Um, there really is a big distinction between being a foreign citizen or being a Chinese citizen in the eyes of the Chinese government. And that really does give us a degree of protection when we're doing our jobs. Well, Dave Kang, multimedia journalist at the Associated Press, please do keep up the good work and thank you for taking the time today from Beijing. Thanks so much for speaking to me again. I really appreciate it.